Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. After an entire year of being away from our friends, family, and colleagues due to the COVID pandemic, the miracle of a COVID vaccination has us all suddenly dreaming of the near-off day when life will return to normal. In light of this, leaders all around the world will soon be forced to declare where and how people will work once it's safe to return to our offices. And for many, it's not an easy question to answer. Some companies like Twitter and Square have already told their employees they can work anywhere they'd like, including never again having to go into an office. And yet Wall Street giant Goldman Sachs has done just the opposite, telling employees they're required to return working five days a week in a traditional workplace. Independent of these outliers, ask anyone on the street and they'll likely say a hybrid work schedule is the way to go. That lets people work remotely some days and in the office on the others. But is that the best for the business? And what about for all of the employees? And what about the leader? Which options are more challenging to actually manage? My guest today is Harvard Business School professor Sadal Neely, who rather uniquely has been researching remote work for two decades. And her new book, Remote Work Revolution, Succeeding from Anywhere, is destined to become a bestseller and will be published concurrent with this podcast. It's an honor to have Sadal join us with such incredible timeliness. She's a leading expert on the subject of remote working and comes prepared to answer the critical questions all of us have as we seek to successfully navigate the post-COVID and now permanently changed world of work. Speaking of that, I went out on Twitter and I asked my friends there to share some of the issues they struggle with most, both as employees working from home and as leaders managing remote teams. And I'm very excited to present some of these questions to Sadal during our conversation. And with that, let me welcome you to the podcast, Sadal Neely. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm thrilled, honestly. I've been really looking forward to this all week. And so let's get going here. I thought of you immediately. I saw the survey in Fortune magazine, and it said that only four in 10 Americans work remotely today, implying that that's like the total audience of people who will ever be able to work from home, right? Because here we are mm -hmm. in, in the pandemic, and so anybody who could work from home did. So I thought... Does that match your number? Like, is that sizing equivalent to what you think it is? And how many of us around the world would really have more than one option than showing up at a workplace every day? Ooh, start with the big questions, huh? <laughs> so here's the thing. That number is lower than the numbers that we've been tracking for the last year. So I've actually been looking across surveys, across groups, across countries, as much as the data are available to determine the extent of the remote work currently and the future projections for them. And so during the height of the pandemic, we had reached between 88 to 90 percent of knowledge workers. You said those who can work, uh, and I'm using the term knowledge workers that is commonly used term just to say that the type of work that you can do remotely without having to interface as a, you know, healthcare worker or a retailer where you really need the physical presence. Those numbers were close to 90% a year ago. They've come down a little bit closer to 70% or so. And you asked the question, what will it look like post-pandemic? Is that what you were asking? What, yes. what do the numbers mm -hmm. look like? Mm -hmm. So it's interesting because the metadata or the meta-analysis, meaning the analysis across multiple sources, actually places the people who desire to maintain some kind of remote work or what we're all calling hybrid. And nowadays, it's actually between 62 to 70 percent, those who want the remote work. Employers, on the other hand, are close to 68 and 70 percent in wanting people back. Do you see the tension there? Well, this is fascinating because I did not expect what you just said was going to happen. But I have believed that, you know, I've been this voice, particularly on Twitter, where I get nasty mm -hmm. emails, but I get responses from people saying, you're full of it because we oh. want to work remotely and companies, if they're smart, they're going to adapt. And you're saying that 70% of them aren't going to adapt. They're going to say, you know, 
all bets are off, get back to the office. Is that what you're saying? No, I think they're going to adapt. They're going to be forced to adapt because of market forces, external pressures. They are going to have to adapt. On an evolutionary basis or like in the next month? I think it's going to be on an evolutionary basis. My prediction is that by the summertime, when we believe, particularly in the U.S., that people will be vaccinated vaccinated at high numbers by the summertime, that's when policies are going to actually be put in place in many companies once people determine what safety is going to look like. The smart companies are ahead of the game already. They've already surveyed their employees. They've determined the policies, the guidelines that they want. Some say, we want you in two, three days a week. Others are saying, as you mentioned, Twitter, people have the option to work remotely forever. A lot of the tech companies, as you know, Dropbox, we want to be a virtual first company. And then you have the many companies that are grappling with the decision. If you have a large portion of your employees who want to maintain or retain some kind of remote work, how are you going to refuse that? Especially on average, most companies have said that productivity has gone up in this past year, which was the biggest paranoia in the beginning. Oh my goodness, what's going to happen to productivity? They've learned that productivity actually goes up and we're even entering the problematic point of productivity, what I call hyper productivity, where people are blurring the boundaries between work and life Thank you. Mm-hmm. and burning out, stressing out and finding themselves in terrible shape. So Now that you know productivity works, the other fear and paranoia that many companies have that they need to overcome somehow is the culture issue. What happens to our culture if we have a distributed workforce? That is the big dilemma. How do we lead? How do we manage? How do we ensure that we hold on to our culture? Keep going. This is fascinating because I've got a lot of stuff I want to ask you, but you've just mentioned culture and you've really mentioned a couple of things that are big issues for me, which is, are we equipped to manage people across the board effectively Mm. this way? Even if we had a year of it, when you take the COVID pandemic out of it and you go to a real world and now you're having some people in the office some days and some people working remotely and you've got all of this sort of like, oh, I really wanted to say something to say doll today, but she's not here. And you create those sort of frustrations. And now I've got to find time to reach you. And there's sort of like this mess. Yes. And then the other side of this is that I went out on Twitter and I asked people, I said, I didn't say that I was going to be meeting with you, but I just said, what are your pain points? And one of the main Mm. pain points is, is that, yeah, we're more productive, but, you know, bosses are creating no space for us. Like there's Mm -hmm. no boundaries of your workday starts at this point and ends in another point. So it doesn't sound like we've really mastered this in any way, shape or form. So I'm just going to stop here. I couldn't agree with you more. We're presently not equipped because we haven't done the work to learn how to lead a distributed workforce, how to lead a distributed team, how to lead a group that you barely see. And how do people collaborate when they barely see one another? This is not the kind of competence that you just pick up organically. These are actual skills. And my biggest hope, frankly, with my book and the way that the book is structured is to provide people the frameworks, the concepts to help determine how they should interact, how should they think about motivation and leadership and all sorts of things. So that's first. Because you've done it for a year doesn't mean you know how to do it well. So I always say just learn how to do it well. And there are many resources that people can use to learn those things well. Just like productivity that goes wrong and we get into hyper productivity, the other thing that could go wrong is this thing that we call flex time. 
A flex time is individuals' ability to cut up their workday or to arrange their workday in a way that works for their individual lives. That means they may work from 6 a.m. to eight and then, you know, set up children for remote schooling and get back online at 930 or work till four and then pick it back up at seven. You just need to be able to arrange your workday in a way that fits and works for you. Do managers want to accommodate? You know, if I've got 20 people working for me and they're all got these, you know, unusual schedules, Mm-hmm. I, it not only requires me to keep tabs on, well, I can't have a meeting at 830 because Bill's taking his kids to school or I can't, mm-hmm. you know, I've got those challenges. Does that make it more difficult for leaders to want to give people that kind of freedom? Well, the first thing is flex time is one of the greatest things that remote work affords people. It increases job satisfaction and it actually helps with retention when it comes to certain groups. It's a big, big deal. We need to use it as a feature, not a bug. The second thing, though, is you're right. Individuals and leaders needing to have predictable and consistent time that are overlapping across the members of the team so that you're doing the collaborative work, you're having your meetings, et cetera. And that part is very important. So this is the reason why even now, some of the companies that have set their policies for their hybrid organization would say, we want everyone in on Tuesdays, or we want people in on, you know, Wednesday and Thursday for this overlapping time, which by the way, I think over time, it's going to be a lot more fluid than that. But you have to create the overlapping time. But the rest of the time, Mark, why do you need to keep tabs on people? Remote work is such that you want outcomes and results, and you need to trust people to know how to go about getting the work done. It's no longer a nine to five mentality. It's much more fluid than that. And that's okay. But guess what? If you look at people who work remotely, they work longer hours. And in fact, some data that uh, was recently collected by my terrific colleagues, Rafaela Sandum and Jeff Polzer, shows that people are on average working 6.8 hours per week, seven hours more in their remote uh, environments. So this idea that people will somehow be more difficult to get, how do we keep tabs, how do we control, needs to go. It's a complete paradigm shift. So let me just make sure I understand what you're saying. In terms of the people who are mostly going to be working from home post-COVID, you're really saying that they're knowledge workers. There's some call center employees that may be impacted by this, but largely you're saying these are high-end jobs where people are accountable for their results and do very well regardless of where they're working. Is that kind of what you're saying? They don't need to be high-end jobs. They're jobs that could be performed from a remote environment through enabling technologies. But do some of those jobs require more supervision than others? So in other words, like, I don't need anybody managing my day. Like, I know what I need to do. I do it every day. I don't have anybody calling me up and saying, where are you? Clients, perhaps. But in terms of just my normal responsibilities, I'm all over it. And so when I've managed people in the past, I've managed people very much that way. I don't care when you come in. I don't care when you go home. This is what I expect from you. And if you're delivering this, then this is fantastic. And people tended to exceed those expectations because of the freedom. But I also hear that there are managers out there that are putting people on, you know, everybody, we need you on an eight o'clock in the morning call. And it's all for presenteeism. It's all just to make sure the people are dressed and ready to go and, you know, putting in a full 10 hour day or whatever. So I'm just wondering about the jobs or are people managing the same kind of people with two different approaches, one where you've got the trust and an autonomy delegation, if you will, and then the other where the manager feels compelled to just micromanage it. Here's the thing. 
I think a big way to answer that is in the last 12 months, we've seen clear evidence for any job, meaning entry-level positions with young people who are just starting out in their careers or administrative support functions. All of those functions and all of those people have all been operating remotely. And we have seen evidence that these jobs can get done remotely. We've seen full evidence of that. And if there are managers who are monitoring or, you know, the less palatable word for me is using various surveillance practices Mm -hmm. because they want to control their teams and controlling their teams in a way is to make predictable their performance, their own performance, the leader's performance. To me, that is a demonstration of a leader who has not adopted the skills, the mindset, and the perspective that when you lead remotely, that is not how you lead. Well, you mentioned this in your book, and it's rather Orwellian, some of the stuff that, you know, they're tracking keystrokes, and in some cases, people are having yeah. to take photographs of themselves and send them in with a timestamp and you know, all this kind of stuff. And so somebody on the other end is creating this, anticipating that there's a big market to sell to. And there is, unfortunately. That's kind of my question. Yes, and they call them awareness technologies. Terrible. They don't work. They backfire. People resent it and end up leaving or what happens? Yes. So people will stick around if the economy forces them to. But those who are on the receiving end of these awareness technologies or surveillance technologies, the term that is most often used is they feel humiliated. It's humiliating. Mm -hmm. It's humiliating. It sends the wrong message. I'm humiliated. Imagine that. Imagine under your care to be a leader whose people feel humiliated because you've created and implemented structures that monitors them. To me, the leaders and managers who are employing these tactics to control their teams or their groups or individuals are poor managers. It's a reflection on their poorly developed leadership skills. And, you know, you reap what you sow. That's my motto. Do you think that that's going to run its course, that there'll be so much resistance to that kind of technological micromanagement that companies will learn their lesson and teach their managers how to manage effectively? Or do you think that it's just going to be with us in certain industries or certain companies? I think they're going to see that they're going to experience turnover. And I'm not just saying this as just speculation. We know that that's what happens. People leave the moment they can. And so uh, in the end, it's better to lead the hard way, meaning you give people freedom, you manage your anxiety, you equip people, you focus on outcome, you coach and support on process, and you trust people. You give trust right away, Hemingway style. How do you know you can trust people, he says? Mm -hmm. By giving them trust. Start off with it. I love it. Yeah, totally. You mentioned Cisco in your book, and I was surprised by this, that since 1993, or at least in 1993, they were one of the first organizations to let people work remotely. Yes. And they sent millions of dollars in real estate, which I just heard Target is selling off, you know, big portions of theirs in Minneapolis. And so what's been the biggest learning from their experience? Are they still doing it? Did they run this from 1993 onward? Did they stop and go? What happened? You know, whether they maintained it and they maintained it at that rate has not been documented. So I can't answer that question specifically about Cisco. What I can say is that 
there've been many companies that have since adopted this remote work format. I mean, we're talking Silicon Valley too, for a very long time, particularly the companies who were developing the actual tools, the digital tools that would enable the remote work. And so that's been a known pattern from that region for a very long time and very effective and very successful. Sun Microsystem is another company that since has been acquired by Oracle did the same thing and ended up saving so much money on real estate. By the way, Mark, I think that's where we're headed as well nowadays, but in a much broader, significant way now that the nation has had to experiment with remote work. I don't know that I had this question, but I need to ask it. What's going to happen to cities and downtowns and corporate campuses and and all of the surrounding infrastructure, the coffee shops and, you know, all the stuff that has served the workplaces. In other words, yeah. if every CEO in the country that's capable of, you know, distributing 30% of their workforce home and they're not coming into work except for one or two days a week, you've got yeah. so much parking income and, I mean, it's crazy, yeah. but... Have you looked into that? Like, are you concerned that we're going to be blowing up the whole infrastructure that supported workplaces for 100 years? It's been coming up a great deal over the last couple of months. And the long-term effect, I think, remains to be written. But what I think is going to happen is that many of the organizations that can do this will shrink their real estate footprint. I don't think they'll get rid of them completely, but they'll get smaller space. And smaller space doesn't mean that the downtown areas we know is going to disappear. I think more people will be sharing smaller space across the board. I also do think that we might see a redistribution of populations. Mm. If I can work at a company that I love and live anywhere. It opens up a lot of uh, opportunities for me and my family in terms of affordable housing or being closer to extended relatives or being where you want to work from. Would it be impossible to believe that even academics can be at certain institutions without having to live in those cities or states? So I think we're going to see redistribution of populations and how our routines work. People don't want to commute the way that they used to. You know, Gardner surveyed some 5,000 people, a report that was published at the end of the year, 2020. And what they found was 13% indicated that they wanted no part in remote work. They were done. I don't want this. I want to come into the office. And 62% want some kind of hybrid model, and 25% want to work from home every day. They don't want to commute. You know, think about the time people spend commuting. An hour each way. Imagine that goes away. And the stress of it. And the stress of it. Yeah. The stress of it. Um, And many people also talk about, you know, I'm saving money now in ways that I couldn't before. So I do think that the country is going to shift in interesting ways. Not completely sure how, but if someone wants to live in Boston and work for a company based in New York, why not? We have an audience in 152 countries. In fact, mm. somebody sent me a note today and said, didn't know we were going to be talking, but he's in India and he goes, we're not going for this. Like there's no support for remote work in India right now. It's like yeah. 75% of the companies are saying, you know, we're not even going to talk about it. So that's just one example. Yeah. Is everything we've been talking about so far applicable to most markets or are there others like India that will be outliers? It's interesting because in India, some of the large companies like Infosys and Tata Consulting have actually already declared that they want within the next two to three years, 40 to 50 percent of their workforce to work from home. 
So once that happens, we may see tipping point, tipping point. But at the same time, I do understand that a big challenge in certain countries is just the technological infrastructure, access to broadband, all of the things that makes work feasible is hard to do from home. And I can see resistance around that. In Japan, for example, in a survey that was taken um, about three or four months ago, 70% of the people that they surveyed said that they wanted to retain some form of remote work. And I'm on the advisory board of Rakuten, which is a Japanese e-commerce giant, Mm -hmm. and I know they're going to incorporate remote work in their workforce planning because many people want it and requested it. And so the question is, how do we change how we manage, how do we change how we connect, how do we change how we gather, given the fact that we want a little bit of the remote work and a lot of our employees want a lot of it. I want to talk about connection in a second here since you mentioned it. But before I do, I want to ask you, Goldman Sachs, the CEO, said, <laughs> "Yes, you're all coming back, friends. You know, <laughs> there ain't no I chance saw of that. Hey, not only that, but he didn't just say, yeah, we kind of weighed the pros and the cons. I mean, he, he was like, this is the worst thing that ever happened. And <laughs> what do you think of that? He said that this remote work thing is an aberration. <laughs> I think that's the word that's the word that he used. Well, my honest belief is that companies who reject this virtual work experience that people have now tasted will do so at their own risk. Why would I go to Goldman Sachs? when I can go to company X, just as good, just as prestigious, but my lifestyle and my work preferences will be honored. I think the market will help dictate what they end up doing in the end. That's really interesting. I mean, obviously they're making the bet that we're Goldman Sachs. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so we pay more than anybody. You have potential to grow and earn, you know, multi-millions of dollars. And so where are you going to find that? And you're going to have to suck it up. And, of course, there was a study today that showed that the junior bankers, you know, are like they did a poll and they're saying, you're killing us. It's inhumane. We're working 100 hours a week and you're abusing Mm. us. And so I look at that and I'm thinking, well, maybe this is what this year taught them. Like, we're not going to sit for this. So I think what you're saying is is that part of what we talked about at the beginning, this idea of an evolution, that it's Mm going to be a rather quick evolution. Because if you start to lose people or you're not able to attract them and you start to see your competitors, you're going to go put the brakes on this, let people work remotely or give them a day, you know, right? Is that kind of what you're thinking? Completely. The other thing is, speaking of competitors, think about the talent pool that opens up if you are not bound by geographical boundaries. So companies will be able to attract top talent if they don't require them to move to certain states and cities that they may or may not want to. But imagine if you could hire the best people that fit your job description, your culture incredibly well and diverse people. Who's that going to serve? Is that going to help Omaha and Kansas City? You know what I mean? Is that going to level the playing field? Because, you know, you could have a really clever company. Well, let's say the mortgage company that's in Detroit, mm-hmm. Quicken. Mm-hmm. You know, who wants to go to Detroit? Let's say they come to you and they say, hey, we want you to come and do some work for us for a year. And you're like, I'm not moving to Detroit. Mm-hmm. But now that you don't have to, are they at a new advantage suddenly where they can say, hey, we still have a really compelling company here. And so, yeah, if I don't have to come there, I'll, I'd love to help you. Is that what you're saying? They're at a huge advantage. That's exactly right. That's really cool. That's exactly right. If physical location is no longer a major factor to attract and retain top talent for your organization, then this is a big asset. And in my mind, this is no different than global organizations, by the way, who are seeking top talent in the country, outside of the country. And now they can go anywhere and access amazing people and let them be where they want to be. So I have a juicy question for you. Does that inherently put enormous pressure on leaders and especially organizations 
to create cultures where people love being there. Even I know we're going to talk about culture being something challenging, mm -hmm. but just in terms of how people are supported and you know the environment that they work in, is engagement going to become more of a premium for companies? A lot of them, I think, have given it sort of lip service. You know, they said mm -hmm. we're making it a priority and didn't really do anything. But if now mm -hmm. your entire workforce is vulnerable, or at least a certain you know a third of it, let's just say, is mm -hmm. vulnerable to competitors you don't even know about, then you have to do more, I'm wondering, to make sure that people want to stay with you and not stay in their same seat, but work across the country or work across the world. I do think that when it comes to questions of engagement, commitment, connection to the company, being able to attach to the shared vision, shared goals to the organization, employers will have to work much harder to achieve those in a distributed workforce. I love it. That's fantastic. It is, it is. But but how is that different from global work or global organizations? Global organizations have had to do this for a globally distributed workforce, which is even much more difficult to achieve. But that's what they've had to do. And there are ways to do it. You do it structurally. You do it through uh, leadership. You do it through bounded teams. There are many ways to do it. And you can do it very, very successfully. We follow each other on Twitter, and I may have seen this, but without mentioning you, I went out and asked them, I said, you know, what are some of the drawbacks, your greatest drawbacks of working remotely? So this really has to do with what's your personal drawback from work as being a worker and then also as a leader, what are the challenges? Mm -hmm. And so let me read what somebody wrote, because it was the very first response I got, and I was like, whoa. Ooh. The chances for informal connection is so rare as to be non-existent. Every interaction is planned and purposeful. Spontaneous talk and jokes and running into someone are missing, and those provided both glue and riches to work life. So I'm certain that everyone listening in is nodding their head in agreement to this to some extent and have experienced feelings of loneliness, yeah. um, even mental health challenges. Yeah. What have you found to be the remedies for this? Now, I know we're going to be bringing people back, let's just say, in a hybrid in some respects, but let's say that this doesn't happen till the end of the year. What are some of the things that people can do to respond to this? By the way, I was nodding my head, too, when when you were reading that. The, the sheer importance of informal contact, the water cooler conversation, the tea kettle conversation in, in the UK, they would say, or, you know, the cappuccino conversation are actually incredibly important for the social lubrication that then contributes to formal work. It also is important for people to feel connected with one another. It's also important for developing mutual trust and care for others. And so when you're in this remote environment, how can you maintain that type of important connection when in fact you're right the the whoever sent that note, the ability to run into someone has disappeared. Well, you have to create those opportunities in the remote environment. First thing I want to mention is you have to structure unstructured time and you build it into routine activities, including the beginning of meetings. A 60 minute meeting, you spend six to seven minutes at the top of the hour to do the connecting and you do it kind of uh, on a routine basis. This is what we do every time we meet. We spend time connecting and the leader can pose a routine question or some other way to prompt the conversation. If you're on a video conferencing that has chat, you can invite people before you begin to say, I'd love to know how everyone's doing today. Can you chat in how you are? And people may chat in anything from I'm hungry today to I'm exhausted to I'm excited to be here today. So you're getting a pulse on where people are. And then you can pick up some of those things and say, whoa, why are you hungry today? And have a fun exchange there. And 
And that's a way to ensure that it's happening regularly throughout the day. Of course, you also want to schedule virtual lunches, virtual gatherings with people and actually pair people up. So if you have a team of, say, four or five people, you say, okay, Sadal and Mark, I want for you to spend time together. I want to, I want you to connect at least 90 minutes for the next four weeks. Or it could be a small group, particularly during onboarding. You want to make sure that people feel connected to themselves, to, I mean, to the organization and to each other. And you say, okay, all four or five of you will buy you lunch every other week I want you to make sure that you're gathering for a couple of hours so you're actually creating and building community in that way a third very important thing to consider is learning activities together whatever it may be, some kind of learning activity that you do together it helps bond you it helps ensure that everyone is of course developing and maintaining certain skills that you want but having people learn together is another powerful way to create these moments. Years ago, when I was writing a lot about global work, I wrote a piece about creating deliberate moments. It's no longer, you know, I'm going to spend X amount of time or do a drive by or walk by someone's office. It's very different in a remote environment. You're trying to create moments and lots of moments. So you feel like you are part of a community and you're not isolated. Give me an example of shared learning. Like, you put a group together, I'm the leader, and I say, okay, you guys get together. What would that be? Like, what? how do you do a shared learning virtually? A shared learning would literally be, today we're going to bring an expert on X and we're all going to work on developing a digital mindset. Got it. And this experience will have, you know, you're not just watching someone lecture, of course, interactive learning that uh, pulls us together. Homework before you start, but some kind of group learning is a powerful way to both equip people, but also connect them. I love that. And I, you know, I'm sort of surprised that companies haven't embraced this more, particularly in bringing speakers in, because you mm-hmm. know, if you're going to send an employee to a conference, it's going to cost you airfare and hotel and being out of the office. And now they're doing it, you know, just turn on your computer for an hour. Totally. But you can spread the cost out, amortize the cost by, you know, instead of having one employee go to a conference, you can have your whole team. Absolutely. You know, you can have thousands of people watching the same thing at the same time. I'm surprised more companies haven't embraced this. And you also said something that I think is brilliant to this question, which is pairing people up. So intentionally Mm -hmm. pairing them up. And you want to know where I learned this? My son has a kindergarten. uh, His daughter is in kindergarten and was doing Mm. remote school. And I read to her remotely every Monday night. And oh, so, do you really? Yeah. And so oh, I, I asked oh, her. It's wonderful. It's really it's such That's a great awesome. experience. But yeah. I asked her, I said, like, what was the most fun part of school? Because now she's doing it remotely. She's now back in school, but in this conversation. And she said, oh, we get playtime with our friends. And I said, now I'm totally confused. Like, oh, what do you mean? Are they coming <laughs> over? And she goes, no, the teacher puts us into our own room. So she puts us into our own Zoom room and she's not there. So all she yes. does is say, I want you just like talk. And so they, who knows what they talk about, five-year-olds, but yes. pairing people up is what I got from that. That's like brilliant. It keeps your social connection, you know, really smart teacher, whoever figured it out. Love it. Mm-hmm. All right. One more from this. And we talked about this a little while ago, but I want to get your answer to it. And this has to do with higher productivity, your research shows, you know, people are working close to seven hours a week more. That's a lot, you know, and they Mm -hmm. could be using that for other things. And so I suspect that when this is all said and done, that part of the mental health issues that we're seeing emerge in every age group will have something to do with loneliness and social isolation. But Uh some of it's going to be like, all I did was work for the past year. Mm -hmm. So do you think as the expert here that managers, organizations would be wise to put some guardrails to say, look, 
I'm not expecting you to be responding to emails at nine o'clock. You know, they also have to have the discipline to not send them at nine o'clock and trip people up. Like, yes. am I gonna, you know, am I going to get in trouble if I don't? But do you think that there should be more clarity around that so that if people end up yes. working seven hours a week more, it's because they chose to, not because they felt the stress and obligation to do that? Yes, yes, yes. I can't say yes more. It's critically important that managers first model the behavior they want to see. So if you send an email during crazy hours, off hours, weekends, add something there that says, when we're back in action tomorrow, can you please tell me your thoughts about X, as opposed to just shooting off emails and hoping that people will respond during what you perceive to be their work hours. The other thing is you can actually use technology to make sure that you schedule your communication to reflect the type of work patterns that you want to see. I also do think that managers have to be explicit about these blurred boundaries between work and home, not wanting them. And they will really do themselves a favor because the last thing you need is a workforce that's completely burned out with members who can barely think, who are unhappy, who, you know, innovation goes down. People can get in trouble with this. The other reason, by the way, that people are working so much is job insecurity. Mm -hmm. Job insecurity, meaning this belief that they need to produce and in a way prove their worth in a world where entire industries have disappeared over the last year. So there's this fear around job security that leads people to overwork and overinvest to demonstrate their worth. And leaders can actually give people more comfort as much as is possible. If reality is different, leaders need to be transparent and honest as best as they can. But job insecurity makes people work harder and longer as well. Well, it's seductive for a manager to say, you know, I don't really want to tell them not to work these hours mm -hmm. because I'm getting that productivity. And if I shut that down, like I'm harming myself. So you sort of like, you know, you look away. You know, so what would yes. be what would be your argument to anybody who has those inclinations listening in that they would be wise to create greater boundaries? You look away for short term gains. If you want the long term and understand that we are in a marathon and not a sprint, you know, the people expected the pandemic to last a few weeks and then a few months. Here we are a year later. Mm -hmm. uh, it's likely that our world will look similar for many more months. So this is beyond people's expectations. And so if you want the long-term health of individuals, and importantly, if you want retention and if you want to create a healthy culture, back to that culture word, I didn't think I'd talk about culture so much today, you have to invest in it and have the clear boundaries of the culture that you want to create, not just for today, but also tomorrow. That's wonderful. I hope they're listening because I totally agree with you because it catches up with you. When you get the phone call that says, hey, I'm giving you my two weeks notice, you know, it's too late to mm -hmm. respond, you know, and you're you're playing with fire. And I think what we're seeing, by the way, I just read today that despite the fact that in America, there's still like over nine million people unemployed, that we set a record or tied a record, a 20 year record for the most people quitting their jobs in one month. Like wow. almost two and a half percent of the American workforce quit their jobs thinking, well, I can I wow. can find one. That's like astonishing to me. Right. Yeah. Wow. Like you wouldn't it think it really that. is. So people are like, nope, you know, 
this isn't working and I'm going and I, I don't know. I think you have a lot of time on your hands in terms of just being with yourself. All that social experience, all the commuting that's been taken away, you're with yourself and you start asking yourself the essential questions of life. Am I happy here? Am I not happy here? Has my boss got my back? Does my boss love me? You yes. know, is this where I want to be and spend my life? People have more time to ask those questions and they're acting on it. I was really blown away by it. Wow. And Imagine if you have a work context or environment that's violating what you believe are the values that you want to live. It's not going to work. It's right in front of you now more than yeah. ever. You know, if more you just ever. run, run, run all the time, you go, yeah, I'm going to have to deal with that sometime. But now it's like I have the time to deal with it and I'm not happy about it. So it's fascinating yeah. to me. I have to keep an eye on that. It really is. You did something I loved. I spoke to your book. I was like, Thank you, Sadal. This is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. So you define that there's really two kinds of trust, this mm -hmm. cognitive trust. So I'm a big believer in heart and mind, right? And we yes. we marginalize the heart and so everything's about the mind. And so, of course, there is cognitive trust, which is this belief that the people around us are responsible, reliable, dependable. They're going to do their job and I can trust them. And then there's emotional trust, Yes, And this, as you say in your book, is grounded in the care and concern co-workers have for one another. Yes, And it relies on positive feelings and emotional bonds. And you also assert that trust is the glue that binds virtual groups and assures their work success. So I'm most interested in the emotional trust, but really what must yes. leaders do to support both of them? Yes, yes. So cognitive trust is, just to, to quickly define it, is the belief that the other person or others in your group have the reliability and the competence to do the work that you've set out to do as a group. Emotional trust is different, as you just described. And leaders need to promote and help team members and themselves gain each type of trust. The cognitive trust is something that can happen very quickly, very, very quickly. And the reason why I provide both types of trust and they're incredibly important in the remote work environment is that it's liberating to know that for me to work really well with this group, I just need to demonstrate and earn cognitive trust. And that's the baseline that I need and things will go well. There's so much evidence that shows that cognitive trust is sufficient to be very successful in a team. The emotional trust takes much longer to achieve because you have to have experiences with others in order to gain it. Not only experiences, specific types of experiences in which members are practicing self-disclosure, true for managers as well, by the way, and the type of self-disclosure that reveals people's preferences, concerns, aspirations, and care. And it has to be mature self-disclosure, by the way, Mark. Too much information is a thing. No. Uh, so self-disclosure, people, <laughs> people have to, people, people have to. I'm thinking of Steve Carell. You know, oh, right, my yeah. goodness, you know, but for this emotional trust, too, you can think of it as colleagues who over time develop a friendship and truly believe that they care about each other and they trust in that. And managers must have emotional trust. Individuals need to believe that their managers cares about them and cares about their best interest. That's the only way that people will be open, will be vulnerable, will work openly and honestly, speak up when they need to, reach out when they need to, etc. And in a remote environment, we can't assume that we will see people and over time, organically, these things will form. Actually, like everything else, you have to cultivate them and managers have to facilitate the opportunities for these things to happen. We talked earlier about how do you ensure that people aren't isolated, that they're having informal contact? How are they connecting with one another? One thing to make sure that we do is understand that leaders and managers can create 
the context for people to develop both types of trust in the course of helping people connect with one another. Well, you know, it's the emotional trust that I think has so much upside for Mm -hmm. remote work, right? It's Mm -hmm. where people are feeling like, hey, I may not be seeing them, but I'm tight with these people and you have to really work at that. So I'm almost thinking I'm going to give you a third shot at talking about culture here, because Mm -hmm. isn't that like a fantastic way of nurturing culture by nurturing people's relationships with one another? Yes, it really is. What is culture? Culture at the end of the day defines our shared values, meaning all of us believe that the same thing is important for us as a group, whatever that may be. Maybe we're empowering society with our work, whatever that is, that we have these shared values. But the second part of culture, the definition of culture is that we have shared norms on what's appropriate, what's not, how do we make decisions, how do we solve problems, how do we perceive things. So our attitudes and our behaviors are governed by certain beliefs. And so the emotional trust that you describe is incredibly important because If we are behaving, if we are thinking, and if we are enacting the things that we value in our organization, the culture that we value, then it becomes truly the glue that holds us together. So it's a real connection between emotional trust and culture as the thing that pulls us together as one unit, as one organization. I'm guessing that some people, some organizations will say what you were hinting at earlier in the earliest stage of the evolution of remote work, where they say, you know, we want you in the office Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and you can work from home Monday and Friday. And during those Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, if this is the way it plays out, just for my example, what would you see people doing in the office differently than they might if they weren't going to be there five days a week? Oh, wow. What a good question. I actually think that they would be spending more time with each other. And in fact, can you imagine if you go back to work and you're only there X amount, you know, three days a week and you see your colleagues? I think they would be a lot more in formal contact because imagine if you go in three days a week and you have back to back to back to back to back to back meetings and you're not leveraging the opportunity. You've wasted it. Yeah. Yeah. You're not, you're not like, leveraging you the see opportunity. That happening? Of course I can. <laughs> so, of course. Okay, okay, Especially, good. you know, I have a recent example where someone said, yeah, we've been asked to come in every Tuesday now. And what happens on Tuesday? Back to back to back to back. What yeah. happens to the informal contact? The water cooler conversation, what happens to it? It's not going to happen. Back to back meetings. So you want them in rooms, having coffees together? Do you have team collaboration sessions? Is it, in other words, do you structure it or do you just tell people, look, when you're in, make the best of this? Because you seem very intentional and very thoughtful in the way that you're recommending how this is done. But it's a lot of time. If it truly becomes three days a week, you're going to have to have some meetings where people are getting work done, you know, but you're queen for a day. You come into an organization that's just moved into this, you know, three day, two day deal. What would you say is the best way to, to use that time? Frankly, there is ample evidence that shows that the in-office, in-person time should be spent on things that require face-to-face communication or conversation. Otherwise, you can do work of any sort without the face-to-face communication. So what do I mean by that? Right now, I'm actually, since I know that you've read the book thoroughly, you've you've shown that. (laughs) I'm talking about chapter four, how do we use digital tools? Right now, people are meeting when they don't necessarily need to meet. They're not using asynchronous communication as much as they need to, et cetera. And there are conditions where you need synchronous communication, like an in-person communication, coupled with 
rich media. That means we all need to be together for this type of collaboration because we are about to make a very complex decision together as a group. That would require for people to meet. In the absence of required activities where people need to meet, people really need to think differently of how they spend their time. Not everything should require this intense meeting back to back to back. And if you have the opportunity, meeting people for lunch or other walks, you know, one of my favorite managers loves to take walks with people. So, To incorporate that into the days that people are in, I think would be important. Otherwise, they could have worked remotely if they're only going to spend that time with four people, five people. I'm happy you're beating the drum on this and I wanted you to because it's like human nature is just to revert to what we know. Mm -hmm. And so when you're back in the office, it's like heads down, get to work. And, you know, if you happen to see people in the corridor, you're lucky. But the worst case scenario in my mind is people spend three days at work and they spend it all in their office and they never get the connection. And then, you know, know, they just miss that opportunity. So, you know, the theme of this whole conversation is we have to be innovative. We have to be, you know, like, It's a tabula rasa. Start all over. What would be the best way to operate? Like, you know, you don't have to confine yourself to the way we've ever done things. Sidal, we have a tradition on our podcast we call the heartbeat round for obvious reasons. And I have a dozen personal questions I'd like to ask you. But for these, we hope you'll answer each one instinctively again in a heartbeat. Are you game? I'm so game. All right, cool. Your best advice for making Zoom calls successful. Shorter for routine meetings. With respect to managing people in the office 100% of the time, managing them remotely 100% of the time, or managing them on a hybrid schedule, which do you think is the most challenging and demanding for a leader? 100% remote and hybrid are equally complex and will require distinct plans to make work. Prediction about the future, you're pretty certain will come true disruption of several industries, including education and virtual events. Newspaper or magazine you never miss reading? Mm, That's a tough one because I am all over the place every day, but I like the Wall Street Journal. I like the New York Times. I like The Economist. A book you wish everyone, everyone listening in would read? Competing in the Age of AI. Who wrote that? Oh, Marco Isantis and Karim Lahani. Wonderful. Your ritual for separating work from home life at the end of the day? Turning off my computer, having dinner with my family, and trying to do that every day. Great. Your synonym for the word heart? Love. Subject you think all leaders would be wise to bone up on? Statistics. Ishk. That's my next book. Uh, uh, not for me. <laughs> Skill improvement you're working on right now. Uh, online asynchronous learning. A trait you most admire in other people. Courage. Heart. And one lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life. Mm. Don't always ask for permission. Mm-hmm. The Uber thought process. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so very, very much. And uh, I have one more question for you. So with that, let me ask you. Is there anything in your book that we didn't cover that you really think our audience needs to hear? Like, is there, or are there any parting words, any final reminder that you would like to give leaders as they're anticipating making their own choices about how they, you know, whether they give people the opportunity to work remotely, how often they get it, what it looks like. So I'm just turning it all over to you, Sidel. All right. So the world has forever changed. The virtualization of work is here. The virtualization of careers is here. And what that means is managers need to think more deeply about how to design their teams or their organization and how to support, create the processes to support them in new and innovative ways. 
we've learned so much in the last year. The things that are difficult and the things that are easy, the things that people love, the things that people don't love, and what works best for us as an organization and even within our industries. And so it would be important to take all of those lessons and to author, in a way, the type of modern organization that will increase not only job satisfaction, but also our productivity. And the first place is to actually collect information, anonymous information, on what people want and understand the numbers. And once you understand, and when I say what people want, This is around reimagining the future of work, whether people want remote, not remote, hybrid, have people provide you that information. And I say anonymously so that people can do this without fear of any kind of uh, repercussion or penalty. Mm -hmm. And once you do that, then construct not only the type of structure that will enable that as best as possible. I mean, you have to make sure you're serving your stakeholders. You're, You're not necessarily going to follow strictly what you hear from your workforce but taking into account the context to adopt a new work format is going to be incredibly important, not only for job satisfaction, but also for retention. This has been so wonderful, and you are wonderful. Oh, thank you so much. I get emails from people saying, God, you have like the coolest guests. Are you ever intimidated? And <laughs> I'm like thinking about that because and it's there's nothing to be intimidated when you're as lovely and kind and thoughtful as you are. So thank you so very much. much. And, you know, the the cool thing is that your book is just about to come out. And so I'm just honored to be able to support it and have our audience hear about it and buy your book. And so on behalf of my entire audience at all, thank you so very much. Mark, thank you so much. What a treat to be with you. The honor is all mine. You're very sweet. Best of luck and number one bestseller for you. I will take that. (laughs) Thanks, Mark. Bye-bye. Before we go, I want to briefly mention that I have a new article in Fast Company magazine. If you're a loyal and frequent listener to this podcast, you'll recall my recent conversation with David Rubenstein, chairman of the Carlisle Group and author of the bestseller, How to Lead. During our conversation, David told me that in his experience of interviewing scores of the most successful world entrepreneurs, including people like Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos, that they always used intuition when making their most important decisions. And that intrigued me so much that I did a lot of research on intuition and made some really invaluable discoveries. The piece is called The Three Kinds of Intuition You Need to Make Tough Decisions. You can find it on the Fast Company website or on my own, markzcrowley.com, and I hope you'll check it out. I want to thank my team, Ken Boynton, Carrie Finnessy, Susan DeRoche, Randy Yant, and Eric Oz. I am especially grateful to them all, as you know. And I leave you with my constant reminder. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now and thanking you so very much for listening. Until next time. Mm-hmm.